This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello there. Regular listeners to the AJ Bell Money Market Show might be wondering why we've published two podcasts in quick succession. The simple answer is that we're going to start producing a bonus podcast at the start of every month that focuses on investment trusts. Now, these are listed companies which invest in a portfolio of stocks, bonds or other assets and which are increasingly popular with everyday investors. My name is Dan Coatesworth and joining me is Laura Souter. Hi there. So as Dan says, this is a bonus podcast and the usual AJ Bell Money and Market show will continue to be produced as normal. But lots of you tell us that you listen to the show while walking the dog. So think of this extra episode as a chance to spend even more time enjoying quality content about investing your hard-earned money. Now the plan is to discuss hot topics each month with a range of investment experts and fund managers. We'll also have an education section to get listeners up to speed if they're not familiar with investment trusts. We'll also debate some of the most popular investment trusts on the market. And to kick off this show, Tom Sieber and Steve Fraser from Shares Magazine will be here to talk about Scottish Mortgage, the £11 billion tech-themed investment trust, which is trying to win back the market's favours after a pretty patchy few years. AJ Bell's Head of Investment Research, Paul Angel, will be talking to Laura about how to find a better rate of income than you'd get from the FTSE 100 Index of UK-listed companies. And Emma Bird, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood, is going to explain why you can buy some trusts for less than the value of their assets, essentially paying something like ATP for £1 worth of goods. And a DCN Investment Trust Manager, Stuart Widowson, is here to explain why he believes it's finally time for smaller companies to have their day in the sun. But Dan, let's start with the absolute basics as this is the first of these new bonus uh, podcasts. So what actually is an investment trust for those that don't know? Well, I'll, I'll do it in under two minutes because it's not complicated. Um Essentially, it's just like a version of an investment fund. So you've you've got a single fund manager or a team who invest in different things, such as there might be a portfolio of shares or bonds or, or, or mix and match. Now, they make all the decisions about what goes in and out of that portfolio. So unlike a fund, you buy shares in an investment trust via the stock market, just the same way that you'd buy an individual company share. So there's hundreds of different investment trusts giving you access to different geographies, different sectors and themes. With a fund, every time you invest cash into it, that money is added to the pot for the fund manager to invest. But when you take money out, the fund manager's got to go and dig around and find some cash to give back to you. With an investment trust, when you buy a share in it, you're actually buying that share from another investor. So it doesn't affect the money held by the investment trust. So if you think back to to when the investment trust was first created, it would have raised money from investors to get it going. Then over the years, hopefully it would increase the value of that money through investing, whilst also being able to borrow some money from lenders to invest in even more stuff. So that's the money that the investment trust will be managing now. So you, as the investor, simply buying a share of that trust. So essentially, you become part owner of that trust. And and and, and trust like they, they call themselves companies because essentially that's what they are. And that was, I timed you there, Dan. And that was 
about a minute and a half. So you Ooh, kept even... in your two minutes. <laughs> Very good. Time frame. But one of the most popular reasons for buying shares in an investment trust is to generate a decent income, which is why they've been very popular with people in retirement. And cash has been king over the past few years, thanks to generous interest rates on savings. But that is now starting to change. Rates look like they're coming down, which means people are going to be once again looking at investments for income. But fortunately, there are lots of options. So I asked Paul Angel from AJ Bell's research department to come on this podcast to talk about this topic. So firstly, Paul, lots of people who are seeking an income will just default to looking at the FTSE 100 and the popular dividend-making stocks that make up that index, but will often overlook investment trusts. Why do you think that is? Hi, Laura. Thanks very much for, for having me on the podcast. Um, I suspect there are two key interconnected reasons for this. Uh, firstly, around uh, the complexity of investment trusts. Um, I know Dan's laid out that they're very straightforward, but but they certainly um, there's, there's kind of a knowledge barrier to get over over in the first instance, um, but also a lack of, as I say, connected to that, a lack of investor familiarity um, around investment trusts. Understandably, um, investors become somewhat bamboozled by talks of discounts and premiums, gearing and revenue reserves. Um, so they opt to invest in something more familiar that they they broadly understand, like a corporation like uh, BP or Shell or, or Anglo-American, or, or even invest in the FTSE 100 index as a whole. Um, as well as that, I think there's also the cost component that might that might hold people back from from buying investment trusts, and, and this is um, again because equities don't don't have a cost as you as you go into them, or they don't seem to have a cost. Um, whereas uh, investment trusts do quote a fee, um, and the fee tends to be a fair bit higher than than passively uh, buying into say the FTSE 100 index uh, as an alternative. But if we were to look at those investment trusts that, with a view of, of kind of seeking out that income, how many investment trusts are able to offer that decent income? So I think if we use a ballpark at the moment, the FTSE 100 is yielding about 3.6%. So how would trusts stacking up against that return? Yeah, thanks, Laura. So, so yesterday, I actually screened all the investment companies on their AIC website, which is a a really handy resource for, for any investor considering investment trusts and I found that almost 50% of the nearly 400 trusts are, are currently paying a yield above 4%. Um, however, I, I, I made some extra um, additions to my screen. I took out trusts that were smaller than, than 200 million in size as well as those trading with, with a discount greater than 20%. And then that left me with a smaller but, but still significant cohort of 49 investment companies. Uh, paying over 4%. So that's a decent number. And I think um, we'll come back to those 49 later, but I'm just interested in those extra overlays that you put on there. So you mentioned that you excluded smaller trusts and those on a large discount. Now, I'm sure for you doing this every day in your job, that's a kind of a normal step, but I think it's probably useful to explain um, to investors why you might put those screens in place. And also, is there anything else that investors doing this kind of research for themselves need to to incorporate? Sure thing. So, so yeah, firstly, I, I removed trusts smaller than 200 million in size. Um, from our perspective, these may have an ongoing viability issue. Uh, they may be uh, bordering on being subscale from a profit profitability perspective for asset managers. Um, so, so we tend to avoid smaller trusts uh, than 200 million. Um, I then also, 
as I said, removed, removed any trust trading with a discount above 20%. Having a discount at this kind of level, I think you might be coming on to cover it later on the on the podcast, but this suggests that there's significant market concern with the trust. Um, and, and also from an income perspective, it actually ends up um, artificially, artificially elevating the yield calculation. Um, so the yield can sometimes look higher uh, in a trust on a discount than actually the underlying distribution payments um, would, would have it. Um, so those are the first two kind of uh, main main things I, I look out for. But then on top of that, um, I think dividend history is pretty important. So uh, investors should should be looking for trusts that have a track record of paying consistent growing dividends. And that would certainly be preferable over fluctuating dividends. And, and then investors can also look at a trust distribution policy and this will detail the timing and, and frequency of, of income payments as well. Um, and I think it's worth worth saying and worth remembering um, that as with any investment, collective investment strategy, um, investors need to be considering um, vehicles on, on their ability to generate total returns, that's income and capital returns, and, and are they able to, to, to deliver these ahead of an equivalent benchmark or, or sector? Um, because to put it frankly, um, simply paying a high dividend would be um, incredibly easy for investment managers to do. Um, it's actually the the careful consideration of preserving and, and growing the capital value of a strategy that's difficult. Um, for example, if you take uh, on a single company level, if you take tobacco companies, well, they've paid some really strong, really impressive yields in recent years. However, on a capital basis, on a stock basis, they're markedly down uh, given the overall structural and existential challenges facing that sector. Um, so investors should be aware that that even when assessing an income strategy, don't just look at the income, look at the total return, but you are there for income. So you want to also be looking at the income components of that total return. And I know Dan gave us a kind of overview of investment trusts, but it's probably worth drilling down into one particular aspect because investment trusts have some unique tools available to them to generate income don't they that their fund equivalents don't can you just explain a bit more detail on that yeah exactly right laura i mean the, the main beneficial feature um is is within their accounting and this is where an investment trust can hold back up to 15 percent of its income per year within something called their revenue reserve account um, and then what they can do with this is they, they can then draw on this in future uh, more fallow years and that then has the benefit of smoothing the longer term level of income or, or income growth uh, provided by a strategy um, and this this feature uh, creates potential for, for something uh, listeners might be familiar with or might have heard of which is the concept of a dividend hero within the sector and it's, it's a great title but essentially it's a term reserved for trusts that have delivered growing income for 20 or more years in a row um, and 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 this, this feature around um, accounting and revenue reserves kind of enables companies to to continue doing paying those good levels of income in, in tougher years. Um, as well as that, investment trusts are able to use leverage or, or gearing, um, which which other collective schemes aren't able to do. Um, so they borrow money to invest in additional assets. Um, this in turn increases the overall dividends paid by the strategy. Um, however, again, investors should be aware that, that while income will certainly be boosted on any income paying assets, um, that leverage also accentuates the overall returns of a trust either to 
to the up or downside. And so then let's come back to those, I think it was 49 trusts that you kind of got to um, earlier, that short list of, of decent income payers. Um, are there particular ones out of that long list that are maybe worth looking at or that you wanted to drill down into? Yeah, sure. Um, so I thought I thought three trusts uh, perhaps would be would be worth considering. Um, so the first one was the City of London Investment Trust. Um, it's actually one of the aforementioned dividend heroes. Um, it's recently recorded it recorded its fifty seventh consecutive year of, of dividend growth, which is a quite remarkable achievement over uh, various portfolio managers um, through that time. Um, and the trust is is invested in, in UK equity markets. It's a decent size at uh, just over two billion, and it's paying a solid dividend yield of around five percent. It's quite a modest level of gearing, just four percent, um, and it's very reasonably priced at, at under forty uh, basis points or zero point four percent. In terms of the underlying holdings, it is full of solid UK dividend payers that listeners would be would be fully aware of, like Shell, Unilever, HSBC, and, and AstraZeneca. Um, from an approach perspective, the manager deploys a measured and, and cautious way of investing. Um, there's a kind of bottom-up valuation-driven approach that focuses on companies producing either an above-average dividend yield or those that are able to grow distributions quickly, albeit from a lower base. Um, and alongside this, the manager also looks to generate uh, strong cash flows or, or looks for companies that generate strong cash flows and operate with strong balance sheets and, and also have a margin of safety priced into their valuations. Um, so that's the that's on the UK side, that's the City of London Investment Trust. Then within Asian markets, there's the Schroeder Oriental Income Fund. This this comes in at a, a healthy 650 million uh, sterling in size. It pays a solid dividend yield, this time just under 5%, slightly more gearing around 6%, uh, but but this trust is actually available on a, on a small discount at the moment of, of 6% too. Uh, so there's some potential for some upside within the pricing there. Um, in terms of some recognisable names in this trust, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing is a large holding, as is Samsung Electronics and, and National Australia Bank. Um, and there's a healthy uh, dividend cover uh, of 1.2 years, which is also um, pleasing for, for kind of the long-term consistency of dividend payments in the future. Um, again, it's a, there's an experienced manager at the helm um, who's who's looking for growing dividends or, or, or premium dividends, um, and in terms of country weights, there's um, there's a large underweight to China uh, in the in the trust recently, um, as as the manager prefers more developed economies within the Asia Pacific region, such as Australia, Singapore, and Taiwan. And then finally, maybe a, a bit different, you've had UK equities and, and Asian equities, and uh, finally European uh, real estate. Um, so, so there's a there's a trust called the TR Property Investment Trust, and this invests, as I say, in, in European real estate and, and in, in a vehicle called uh, Real Estate Investment Trust. So REITs, as there as the common vernacular goes, um, and again, this is paying just under five percent at the moment. Been been boosted a fair bit by its fifteen percent um, leverage position. And uh, there's a there's again there's another healthy dividend cover ratio. Um, and also, there's there's a good record of five percent dividend growth per annum over the last five years on on this strategy. Um, again, there's a there's a healthy discount at the moment for for investors of around seven percent. Um, and the the manager again, very credible long term track record. 
Uh, this time, he's he's looking to identify quality companies with stable earnings and liability structure with low leverage. There's a focus on sectors rather than regions across across Europe, and and the real target is on areas of structural growth, but but bearing in mind a, a valuation overlay as well within within stock selection. Um, in terms of maybe to finish up, in terms of, of current positioning in that in that trust, the, the key sector overweights are. Uh, things like industrial property, French offices, uh, UK retail property, and European shopping centres, and then on the on the underweight side, Swiss property, uh, UK and Irish residential property, self storage, and then European healthcare as well. Okay, great. So some areas you know people can research there and and delve into. But coming back to that initial um, in my introduction, I talked about cash becoming a very attractive asset class. Um, and clearly, the big debate for investors at the moment is what to do about cash. So it's still returning a decent yield, although obviously, as I said, the horizon is for interest rates to drop. Um, and some people have preferred to kind of move out of investments and into cash and get a fixed rate account. But what are some of the things to to consider with people weighing up cash as an asset class, particularly as it's had so long of not really being a contender thanks to low returns? Sure. Well, I mean, firstly, I think it's definitely a, a really tempting trade to to move across into cash given the certainty available there. Um, however, there is there's certainly a broader issue for investors to consider here, and that's for me, really around the opportunity cost of, of not being invested in the market. Um, the market can move a lot in a day or a week, um, let alone a month or a year. Therefore, um, investors really need to carefully consider whether they're happy to take the risk of, of being out of the market for, for any period of time um, as, as they can miss out on on potential gains uh, that, that, that peers and, and, and everyone else who remains invested gets to benefit from. Um, tied to that, Shares, unlike cash, typically outperform inflation over the long term. Um, so as interest rates eventually fall, the, the less nimble investors who, who remain in cash, um, well, they risk having the real value of their savings eroded by inflation over time. Um, we're in quite a brief moment now where interest rates are higher than, than inflation, um, but that's not guaranteed to, to last um, into the future. Um, so that's the, the second risk. And I think, I mean, overall, to, to, to bring it all together, I think the old investment adage is, adage is as ever pertinent here, and that's that it's time in the market rather than timing the market um, that counts for, for long-term capital growth. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, one of the key things that we wanted to do with this bonus podcast is to help educate listeners as, in theory, the more you know, the better informed investment decisions you will make. So with that in mind, we asked Emma Bird to come on the show to share some of her wisdom. So Emma is Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood and knows a lot about how investment trusts work and what you need to look for. So I think one of the key attributes of investment trusts is that they can trade above or below the value of their underlying assets. And I think in, in plain English, it kind of means that some stuff comes at a premium price, but for many, you can buy these portfolio of assets for less than they're actually worth. Um, and obviously, investors quite like this sort of the idea that they can snag a bargain. So, so Emma, why is it that investment trusts don't always trade exactly in line with the value of their assets? Yes. Yeah, so unlike 
open-ended funds um, that some of the listeners may be more familiar with, like unit trusts or, or OICs, investment trusts are listed on the stock exchange. So um, you buy shares in them and the share price um, is determined by um, investor demand um, for, for the shares. Um, normally that does um, go up in line with demand for underlying asset classes if certain uh, asset classes are in favour um, then that leads to more demand but there are lots of other things um, at play so for example if a particular investment trust has had a long period of outperformance that can fall out of favour um, and people want to sell the shares and the, the share price goes to a discount to that asset value um, there's lots of other things that determined demand um, for the shares of investment trusts. So um, something we saw recently over the last two years is that a lot of um, trusts moving to discounts or discounts widening in a, a rising interest rate environment. A lot of investors actually just wanted to move in, into cash or or high yield um, high yielding um, bank accounts or, or, or bonds. Um, and so remove themselves from the equity market in general. Um, and even though um, maybe the underlying assets were, were still performing um, that led to shares moving to a discount for investment trusts. Yeah, I think if you look at things like uh, infrastructure investment trusts, so I always used to think that they're incredibly popular with people who wanted to to, to get a good income. Um, and it's like it seems overnight that the sort of the, the the interested buyers for those trusts has just totally disappeared. Everyone's just sort of jumped straight into cash, and and, and those poor old infrastructure trusts are having quite a, quite a sort of a, a tough time, aren't they? You know, the, the discounts have really widened there. Yes, exactly. So we saw it um, particularly in infrastructure, but also in areas such as property and private equity um, asset classes that um, are generally interest rate sensitive. So there's a kind of few dynamics going on there. Firstly, um, a lot of investors expected the underlying asset values um, to decline in a higher interest rate environment. Um, so for, for infrastructure, the assets generally um, valued on what's known as a discounted cash flow basis um, using the market interest rate as a way to discount future cash flows and as that as interest rates went up they were expecting future declines in the underlying net, um, net asset value so um, they sold the shares um, similarly for kind of property and private equity they thought there was less value in the underlying assets um, at the same time um, particularly for infrastructure and property many investors were holding these investment trusts for the income that they could receive. Um, and if they were, were previously earning a, a yield of, say, 5 or 6%, that was uh, very attractive in a near zero interest rate world. But as interest rates rose very quickly um, in the UK and other developed markets, that yield no longer looked attractive. I know that some investment trusts have sort of a few levers they can pull to try and make their shares trade closer to the value of their assets. Because Certainly, I think if, if they've got a too big a discount or too big a premium, some investors are put off by that. So we've got this concept of something called a discount control mechanism. Can, can you explain how that works and, and does it actually make a difference? Yes. Yeah, so some investment trusts will have um, stated discount targets. They won't want their discount to be any wider than 10%, say, and the level does vary, um, or some are less uh explicit and um, they'll have a, have a more general discount control policy. Um, the most common 
method that um, the boards of investment trusts use to um, try and narrow the discount or, or limit the discount um, are share buybacks. Um, so just as um, some kind of traditional corporate companies um, can buy back their shares as a way of um, returning uh, capital to shareholders, investment trusts can do that. Um, so they're almost kind of uh, inflating um, demand for the trust. So the board themselves are buying the shares um, as a way to increase the, the share price um, and, and narrow the discount. Um, there is quite a lot of debate about how much this actually works um, and the advantages and disadvantages of it. So um, they're buying back their shares. They either kind of cancel them or or hold them in treasury. But what, what they do by buying back the shares does actually shrink the size of the investment trust. Um, and then that that can lead to other issues such as um, liquidity or um, issues of remaining relevance. So there are um, perceived disadvantages to it as well. Um, and then there is also a debate around how much it actually works. The w- one trust which, which catches my eye, it sort of leaves me perplexed as to why it constantly trades on such a big discount is um, Pershing Square Holdings. So this is, this is managed by... Bill Ackman, who, who's pretty famous investor around the world. So, I mean, that's got stakes in some pretty well-known sort of um, American companies like um, Restaurant Brands International, which owns the Burger King brand. Uh, it's got stake in Hilton Hotels and Google's parent company, Alphabet. But we, we can buy shares in Pershing Square for 27% uh, currently below the value of its underlying assets. But I think that's a bit a bit of a strange one because clearly it's got stakes in really big liquid companies. Why is this discount persisting? This investment trust used to be um, a hedge fund. Um, it was in the uh, hedge fund sector. Um, it had some quite public um, shorting um, positions and the, the manager, as you mentioned, Bill Ackman, and was quite public in his views and... Um, on certain positions they did other um kind of hedge fundy things like options and um things like that it and now it has moved into just the north america peer group and it's um much more of a portfolio um of, of u.s large companies but i think people's perception of it previously is still kind of acting as an overhang um and, and weighing on on sentiment there um i think possibly one of the other things is that um, it, it might be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if people have seen it trade on a very wide discount despite um, this kind of regular portfolio and despite actually very good um, performance. If people aren't seeing that discount narrow, then they're wondering what any catalyst would be to, to cause that share price discount to narrow. So discounts can be a very good opportunity to buy a pool of assets um, for less than they're worth. But as a shareholder, you only get the share price total return. Um, so if that discount doesn't narrow, then that it doesn't actually benefit you as a shareholder. So it's, uh, certainly the property space, um, seeing some of the discounts narrow there, because they've been pretty wide in the last couple of years, obviously linked to interest rates um, going up. I mean, what? What? so I think you know, when I last looked, you could get probably about discounts about 20 odd percent for, for UK commercial property and you know pushing 40 percent for European property so obviously you know, the fact that these discounts are still there um what, what is it about those the property space which is still kind of leaving investors a little bit sort of perhaps cautious yes I think um partially macroeconomic concerns um 
linked to the property sector. So firstly, um, higher interest rates. So even though um, we're generally thought to have reached peak rates, um, they are expected to stay higher for longer. Um, that's generally bad for the property market. A lot of um, people that buy commercial property um, partially found that with debt. So um, that's obviously more expensive in a high interest rate world. Um, and so leading to less demand and, and lower property values, um, as well as potential kind of recessions or poor economic conditions can, can impact property values. So one of the key things to remember with property investment trusts is that their underlying net asset value is only um, released either every quarter or sometimes even less than that, um, generally every quarter. So for, for the most part, the current um, NAVs that people see are still as at 30th of September 2023. So the market um, is a forward-looking mechanism, and if share price, shareholders um, or investors are expecting those NAVs to be lower at the next valuation point, that will be reflected in the share price ahead of time, causing um, these investment trusts to be trading at a discount. And just just finally, the one thing that obviously we've been talking about discounts, but um, let's talk about premiums, because you know, I, I seem to recall maybe two, three, four years ago, there were quite a lot of investment trusts trading uh, above the value of their assets, I, I looked the other day and the list was tiny. What, where, where are they all gone? Is it? Is this just a? Is this a, a standard thing that we see these cycles of lots of premiums and then and then hardly any? Um, it, it does. I think. Um, possibly, yeah, relate to kind of market cycles in general. Um, a, a lot of the premiums that we saw. Um, three years ago were in the kind of alternative asset space, particularly infrastructure and renewable energy infrastructure. Um, this is also um, related to the point I made earlier about kind of delayed publication of NAVs. So these infrastructure um, and renewables investment trusts generally traded at a premium because investors were expecting at the next valuation point the NAV to be higher than, than the last published one. So they were again, already factoring that in, as well as the demand for um, the kind of stable income that these funds were producing in, in a low interest rate world. Um, and then as, as I mentioned, all of those have now gone to quite big discounts. So that's really impacted um, the, the overall um, um, investment trust sector discount there um, and meant that there's hardly any trading on, on a premium now. Well, Emma, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you. That was Emma Bird from Winterflood. Now, each month we're going to analyse one of the most popular investment trusts among investors. And to kick things off, it makes sense to start with one of the big ones, Scottish Mortgage. So two people who know a lot about this trust are Steve Fraser and Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. And they're here today to give us a lowdown on why it is so widely held among investors, but also the reasons behind the sharp decline in its share price in recent years and what the trust is hoping to do this year and beyond. So Steve, Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Laura. So for those who are unfamiliar with the name, Scottish Mortgage has nothing to do with home loans north of the border. It would make a curious subject for this podcast if it did. To run through a very brief history lesson, it was established by Messrs Bailey and Giffords, founders of the asset manager, which still runs Scottish Mortgage today in the early 20th century. They set it up to lend to rubber planters in Southeast Asia, looking to capitalise on demand for tyres amid the growing popularity of the motor car, with loans secured against rubber estates. Within a few years, this opportunity had played out and the vehicle switched to investing in financial markets instead. Fast forward, 
um, to sort of the period coming out of the 2007-8 financial crisis. And Scottish Mortgage enjoyed an absolutely stonking run. Um, it benefited from investing in some very innovative growth companies, um, some of which are household names today, like Amazon. Um, and they were very much in fashion with the market at the time. But more recently, that run of success has come to an abrupt halt. And the value of the trust has more or less halved since the highs it achieved in late 2021. It's probably not a coincidence that that coincides um, with the period where central banks started putting up rates to contain inflation. So, Steve, where are we with Scottish mortgage today? Are they just struggling because growth companies are out of fashion? Hi, hi Tom. Yeah, um, not at all. Um, I mean, if you consider the, the, the run that many growth companies had during the, the last quarter of last year, certainly, but even um, the last half of last year, and you can see that the market was already starting to look beyond high interest rates and look at interest rates coming down and growth assets started to really accelerate. Um, and yet Scottish mortgages uh, share price clearly didn't. It, it's bucked that trend. Now, in the in the very um, short time frame, maybe the last six weeks or so, it started to have a bit of a rally. But I mean, there's clearly another issue at play here. And, and that main issue is about the scale of the number of uh, private companies in which it, it owns stakes. And, and the problem is for investors is that these private companies um, only get valued on a very occasional basis. So unless they're raising money or they're joining the market, like listing on the NASDAQ or the LSE or something, um, it can be left open to interpretation about what the balance sheet valuations are. And um, a lot of investors are taking a very cautious view, clearly, about what the balance sheet values of, of Scottish mortgages uh, stakes are worth. Yeah. I mean, in terms of those private companies that you're talking about, there are a few that are, are more prominent. I mean, it's probably worth talking about some of those um, that the Scottish mortgage is invested in currently and the ones perhaps it's most excited about. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they are very, very committed to the private company space. And there's a very clear reason in their mind uh, about why that should be. Their, their belief is um, that some of the fastest growing companies on uh, anywhere to be had are still in the private space. Now, this is partly down to um, companies just wanting to time a, a potential IPO a bit more, uh, partly down to managements are quite happy to be in the private space and not have to deal with the, the extra rigmarole of of uh, of running a publicly listed company, so there are good reasons why companies are staying private for longer than they might have done in the past. So what Scottish mortgage managers say, uh, Lawrence and Tom, they're basically saying um, we don't want to um, lose out on backing these companies simply because they are not on a a public market. Um, and for some investors, that's um, that's a, a tricky conundrum to overcome. Yeah. I mean, do you think they'll ever give in to or have to give in to that pressure to an extent just to, if not eradicate, but kind of reduce the amount of private companies in the portfolio? Well, well, I, in recent conversations, I, I mean, I have asked exactly that question. And while we can never say never, right, I mean, we understand no one predicts the future, but they have absolutely fundamental 100% commitment to their policy of owning private companies. And to the extent that they've raised, that they, that they have an allowance, so they're, they're, they're non-executive board um, who, whom the managers answer to, um, 
they, they allow them to invest a limit of the fund, a percentage of the fund. And it was about 20% up until, I don't know, five or six years ago. And it's now up to as much as 30%. So that means they can invest as much as 30% of their assets into private companies. So if anything, they're going the opposite direction. They are showing more ambition to be uh, to own privates rather than show less. So in terms of the names, then you've got, North Vault, which some people, if they follow the sort of space, might be familiar with. But do you want to talk about that one a little bit and maybe some of the other kind of specific names? Yeah, I mean, North Vault is a company that they they they, they like a lot. It's a Swedish battery manufacturer. So think about batteries in electric vehicles. That I mean, that's 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 what we're very, very familiar with now. And we see the direction of travel with electric cars. Clearly, there's going to be a massive demand for more batteries. In fact, I've got some data here that's from Scottish Mortgage themselves, and they're talking about the gigawatt capacity, so gigawatt hour capacity in 2022. There was global capacity of 1,163 gigawatt hours available. And by 2027, it's estimated that there will be uh, 8,945 gigawatt hours. Now, that's an enormous explosion in, in a space of five years. And, and it's not so surprising, considering the, um, the, the, the rapidity in which people are starting to em embrace electric vehicles. Um, but one of the big issues, of course, is, is, is we're all aware increasingly that, that Washington in particular, but the West in general, are at, at loggerheads with Beijing and the Chinese authorities. And it's mainly over the most advanced technology. The, the, the both sides are, are fairly cautious about um, sharing their best technology, but the Chinese are not great at um, coming up with their own technology. So um, about 80% of all electric vehicle batteries are currently made in China. Now, it could be that um, if things were to get increasingly tense uh, between the West and China, that uh, those supply chains start being unwound. Um, so, so the Americans and the Europeans um, don't want to be uh, beholden to Chinese supply. So the fact that Northvolt is in Sweden um, means it's not just a, um, a another supplier of a, a, an in-demand product, but it's actually a, a, a geopolitical strategic asset to own, um, to have that manufacturing capacity uh, in the relative safety of, of the West. And another name... Um, that Scottish Mortgage has exposure to is SpaceX, isn't it? The Elon Musk kind of bat. Elon Musk, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, it, it, the point was made to me is, is Scottish Mortgage believes that, I mean, even wealth managers and some fund managers still seem to think SpaceX is really a, a space tourism company, much like um, Blue Origin. Virgin Galactic uh, or whatever, yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, and it really isn't. I mean, it's, it's all about um, launch capacities and getting satellites into orbit. Now, um, SpaceX largely run almost all now of, of NASA's um, uh, space exploration programs, but much more important, um, increasingly the modern world needs satellites um, in low orbit in order for us to all communicate. And so SpaceX also owns its own Starlink network of satellites. And what it wants to do effectively is bring super super fast broadband um, connectivity to parts of the world that, that that normal communication networks simply can't reach. So think about you know 
people in this country, people in like the um, the, the far region of Scotland, perhaps, perhaps where you live, Tom, uh, or, or down in, in the, yeah, in the far southwest, the place, but, yeah. um, that they're still struggling with two and a half G or three G connections, and they can be a bit intermittent sometimes. So imagine what what it's like if you happen to live in the far far reaches of Norway, or you happen to live in the, uh, the, you know, the somewhere on the fringe of the Sahara Desert. You know, so there is clearly a need in terms of bringing, of equalising the access to the internet um, uh, across the globe, and and that's that's really where Starlink sees a huge opportunity. And it's not just obviously, you know, we talked about how they've got a limit of thirty percent on private. Um, assets that there's listed companies in the portfolio as well are there any names that are worth highlighting there that the company the trust has been particularly excited about i mean obviously 70 percent of the of the portfolio um at least uh will be invested in listeds um and so i mean some of their biggest portfolio holdings are currently things like asml um the, the big uh, chip equipment manufacturing company based in holland um, it's currently their biggest holding. Interestingly, they've, they've been saying recently that they've actually been um, trimming their stake in ASML, uh, not because they think it's uh, you know it's days numbered, but simply they believe that the growth potential in ASML is a bit less uh, exciting than it might have been in the past, and there are other slightly more exciting opportunities elsewhere. So it's really a case of just trimming um, a bit here and and investing that money. Uh, somewhere else and and a good example of somewhere else is the latin american company called mercado libra now this really started out as the kind of um, amazon answer to latin america and the reason amazon isn't in latin america or most of latin america is because of the the, the geography and topography of the place if you've ever been to to latin america you'll realize that everywhere is basically forest and mountains the, the, the entire continent is forest and mountains and, and it's incredibly difficult to manage a, a logistics network across that kind of terrain without really, really localised, specialised knowledge. And Amazon don't really have that localised, specialised knowledge, but Mercado Libre have it in abundance. But they have ambitions to go way beyond um, simply being a, a retail platform. Um, the, the talk about, you know, many of their merchants are, are one-man bands. That we're talking about street stores down to that kind of micro level. And many of these people have never had access to credit in the past which as a merchant can be obviously very, very useful in terms of stock control and, 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 and sorting out the peaks and troughs of, of, your, of your demand cycle. And so actually Mercado Libre had their ambitions to become um, the biggest banking credit provider in Latin America. Now, we're not talking about the biggest digital credit provider. We're talking about the biggest period. Um, that's how ambitious it is. Um, so that in itself um, would imply an enormous opportunity for the company um, if it's able to execute on those sort of ambitions. And and clearly Scottish Mortgage feel um, they can and they will. Um, and at the moment, um, they're very much back in Mercado Libre to, to um, grow faster than the market by a long distance. Just a final question then, I suppose front of mind for any holders of Scottish mortgage will be what potentially could be a catalyst for turning their performance around. Have you got a perspective on that? 
Well, you know, as we go back to to, to the, the root cause of the, the problems, I mean, the private companies' uh, exposure. So, I mean, getting some of those private companies listed will be a massive step forward. Um, it, it's believed around half a dozen of their better known names, companies, for example, uh, like Northvolt um, and, and several others have already um, explored IPOs and have decided the time is not right. So presuming that that 2024 chugs along and um, starts to stabilize and look a bit more positive for growth companies, we might start seeing some of these IPOs actually happen. So that will crystallize the value and take away some of the uh, uncertainty about, well, is uh, Scottish mortgages uh, stake worth as much as they say it is. Um, that gives you, you know, tells you exactly what the, the market thinks it's worth. The other factor as well is just having a, a better IPO market period will will be an encouraging sign for um, for more growth companies. Um, lower interest rates will just benefit uh, growth companies. Period. So it means that the whole backlog for their portfolio should be uh, a, a lot better. But we are still, you know, unsure about what the curve is for lower interest rates. And as we've seen with our own Bank of England very recently, um, it, it's, it's not certain that we're gonna see lower interest rates in, in the short term. Um, so it's a bit of a movable feast. Um, we could get to the end of this year and realize that the interest rates are nowhere near as low as we thought they'd be. You know, the future is impossible to predict, but those kind of foundations will certainly create a catalyst for Scottish mortgage, you'd think. Thanks both. It's time to bring out our final guest. So Stuart Widowson manages the Odyssean Investment Trust and is a specialist in spotting interesting small cap stocks. So since launch in May 2018, Odyssean has delivered more than twice the return of the FTSE All Share. So Stuart, why do you think that the market has lost interest in UK small caps over the last couple of years? Well, I think it depends on institutional retail investors. I mean, institutional investors have been moving away from UK actors for quite a long time. You know, you can see the data on pension funds. You know, they used to be big holders of UK actors. Now they've moved largely into bonds and global actors. So that's that's been ongoing. But I think more recently, in the last couple of years, there's been a decline in risk appetite, both from institutional investors and actually from retail investors as well. And that's really um, gone alongside interest rates going up. So Again, risk appetite for small caps tends to fall when when interest rates go up. Um, and also, I think there's there is the the back to work effect. So it appears to us, if you put volumes, that during COVID, lots of people were sitting at home, began to trade the stock market. Volumes went up. You can see that with winter floods results. You know, part of Close Brothers. And then as people, you know, the marginal retail investor as he's gone back to work, basically has stopped stopped investing as much. So I, th- I think there's a whole bunch of factors. I mean, what I guess the key question is, what what's the catalyst to sort of regain interest? Because I, I, I know markets sort of sort of start to perk up at the end of last year. Do, do, are we actually seeing the very first signs of a uh, little bit more interest in this space? I think from a asset allocation, institutional investors' point of view, definitely. I mean, I think certainly we, we as a manager, have seen much more interest um, from non-holders coming through. Really, since about since about uh, October, and I think part of this is around where institutional asset allocators think they are in the investment cycle and the interest rate cycle. So typically, um, the first asset class to see uh, you know good capital gains when the interest rate cycle turns is, is, is government bonds. Then you've seen yield compression there. Then it cascades down into corporate bonds. 
then high yield bonds. And then if you put something called the Merrill Lynch asset allocators clock, the first element of equities that moves tends to be small cap. And particularly uh, around the world, UK small caps, we think look pretty interesting. And it, it, it does appear to, to be gaining the interest of, in, uh, of asset allocators. Now, if you look at what that means for share prices in small companies, what you tend to find is when allocation switches from taking money out of an asset class to putting money into the class, given all these companies are not that liquid, you don't need that much new money to come in to move share prices quite materially. We don't know when the catalyst is going to be. We don't know what's going to change that sentiment, but we don't think it's too far away. I presume this is UK small caps, if they've been so unloved, is this an element of um, the, the stuff that suffered the most could actually be the you know, the ones to, to bounce back the first? Is it because of the natural slightest change in people having a little bit more risk appetite? Small caps does seem like a logical place to to look. Yes, and, and they tend to be... Uh, in aggregate, so there's a perception they're much more sensitive to improving economic circumstances or, or the environment. You know, uh, you know, super tankers like big FTSE 100 companies, very, very, uh, takes a long time for them to slow down, takes a long time for them to gain momentum. A lot of small companies have had more difficult trading conditions over the last year or so, but when things get better, they tend to really react much quicker as well. It's a bit like putting nitrous oxide in your engine. They're the ones that really go for it. So Odyssean Investment Trust has got sort of this reputation for being good at picking stocks that subsequently get taken over. So I'm just wondering, in terms of your portfolio in 2023, did did you sort of see a continuation of that trend or was actually, the, I know there was definitely was takeover activity. Was it in the sectors in which you focus? So we had um, less takeover activity in the portfolio than recent years. We only had one portfolio company approach, which was a company called Hive. Uh, which is an events company. In fact, that company got a got a bid approach at more than fifty percent premium to where we bought within a month of us buying it. So that was like all the stars aligned, and we were a bit Excellent. lucky there. <laughs> um, but for, that was in Q1. But for the rest of the year, we didn't re-participate in a lot of the M and A interest, and that's part of the reason for that is um, over the last year to eighteen months, we've really put the put the portfolio more into sort of industrial small companies, and the buyers of those companies tend to be overseas trade buyers. Now, these companies, in many cases, are trading on very, very large discounts, their long-term enterprise value to sales ratios or price-to-book ratios. Um, but there was no activity in, in UK small cap industrials last year, so we didn't really benefit from that. Uh, we think the prospects for uh, improved M&A are much better this year, um, but it might be that these stocks suddenly re-rate as recovery situations and get to a level where M&A doesn't make sense. So um, we think of it as a bit of an each-way situation. Either they re-rate and get close to fair value, or turn to they do look very vulnerable to to interest from overseas trade buyers. You seem to like investing in sort of slightly broken companies or ones that perhaps have lost their way. Is there a sort of a secret to investing in you know, what this space is? What people call it special situations. I presume you also need to be very careful about what to avoid as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and our expectation is not every single situation works, which is one of the reasons we have a portfolio. But you're absolutely right. We, we effectively look for a, a, a number of positive attributes for a situation, and we look to avoid certain other negative attributes. The positive attributes, it has to be a decent quality com company or potentially a decent quality company. So it has to sit in a good place in its supply chain, not too many competitors, no real supply dependencies, no real customer dependency. Secondly, um, 
there's got to be a big margin of safety in the valuation we buy our shares at. And thirdly, going back to the special sits or, or slightly broken companies, there needs to be a clear, identifiable reason why things have gone wrong, what things could be done to fix it, and then our ability to take a view on can this be fixed and have we got the right people trying to fix the company. So that's what we look for on the positive side. What do we avoid? Well, look, there's there's a very, very long list. We have a very detailed investment note, which effectively goes to a checklist of all the areas we've lost money in the past and tries not to repeat it. Um, I think the first thing on valuation, um, you, you really need to avoid overpaying for the opportunity to turn a business around. You know, there's no good being a shelter in a business that improves itself and makes no money because it was priced in the day you bought it. So, so that march of safety is very, very careful. Secondly, sunset industries, so industries in long-term structural decline. I think of the newspaper business. If 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 you know newspapers can't move to digital or any any sector where it just won't exist in you know 30, 40, 50 years, very very difficult to uh, to make money in special situations in those sectors. And finally, what we call as lobster pots. So a lot of the companies we invest in aren't that liquid. And you want to avoid a situation where yes, you can get in, but you can't get out. <laughs> so mm-hmm. avoiding companies where if things don't quite go to plan, you want you want to avoid companies where no one wants them. You know, so if it doesn't quite go to plan, they're not good enough quality for a trade buyer. They're not interesting enough, you know, from a cash flow perspective, from private equity, and maybe there or maybe there's a horrible large pension deficit that means nobody wants to get involved, and that's bad because no one wants to buy the company. And secondly, it's very, very, it's, it's much harder to get a good management team to go and turn around a bad business than a good management team go and turn around a potentially good business that's basically under a cloud. So lots and lots of things we look at, Dan. It always amazes me, how, how do you hold your nerve when things go wrong? I mean, I, I think the natural reaction to perhaps um, you know everyday investor would be, you know, oh, we would get really frustrated. We would just sort of think, okay, I'm just going to sell this now. But you know, I guess if you're if you're in here, you've done lots of research into this company. You know, when do you say no? Let's just wait a little bit longer, or you say no, we we got it wrong. Yeah, uh, look, it's an excellent question, and I think as an investor, you know, I'm 23 years into the journey of being a professional investor. It does get easier over time, and one of the key challenges you have, Dan, is. You know, the market can be irrational actually both ways, you know, over extrapolating good news and over extrapolating bad news. And I think before you invest, it's very clear to set down your thesis of why you're investing. And things always happen along the way. No share price moves in a straight line. So what we do as a team, we sit down. We never make any knee-jerk reactions. We sit down and say, actually, what's gone wrong here? Is it a short-term share price move based on something that management can't control? Or is it fundamentally something different with the investment thesis? Or actually, you know, you know, has something badly gone wrong in this company? And the investment thesis could be the external market and various other factors. So um, well, then we decide whether or not there's a thesis violation. Actually, we just got this one wrong. If you've got this one wrong, the best thing to do is just move on, right? Very, very simply. However, if the shares have gone down because of some short-term company performance, and actually, the management's delivering all the things they should. And you think fundamentally, you're going to get to the same place in three, four, five years' time. You know, your thesis is still valid. Things just gone wrong in the short term. And quite often, the market extrapolates those short-term situations that can be a great opportunity to double down. So, so we've done both. You know, we've had certain situations where we look at something, thesis violation, we'll move the stock on. We have other situations that have been quite painful short-term, but we said actually. 
the baby's been thrown out of the bathwater and we've doubled or sometimes even tripled our position. Thank you, Stuart. What a great interview. And that is all we've got time for. We'd love to know what you think of this bonus podcast on investment trusts. You can email all of us at the team on podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And also we would love it if you could leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to it. We'll be back as normal in a few days time with the usual scheduling of the Money and Markets podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.